0: I love the line that says, Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wound supplied. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Guys, there's no greater theme to have than that. There's no better chorus to keep coming back to in the song of our life of just the redeeming love of Jesus. Hey everyone, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 105. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. And the main audio of this podcast is actually me teaching in San Diego, California last summer. Uh, This is a session on Christ-centered preaching, and if you are a long-time listener of the podcast, um, you would have heard me give a similar talk back in episode 40, but that was 65 episodes ago, so I figure it's worth putting on this latest version of it. So... I hope you enjoy it. Uh, this is something that a lot of people have said is very important content and I certainly agree. Okay, now we're gonna go over to Nick Katie, and Nick is going to invite you to our upcoming webinar. All right, see you later.
1: Hi, this is Nick Katie inviting you to join us for our first ever Expositors Collective webinar on May 9th from 9 to 11 a.m. Pacific time on Zoom. The webinar is called Spirit-Led Preaching in a Changing World, and we will be joined by Brian Broderson and David Guzik as we explore how to bring the timeless message of the Gospel to bear on an ever-changing world in the most effective way possible. How do we find the balance between being prepared and being led by the Spirit in our preaching and teaching of God's Word? How do we find the best methods for reaching people in our context without compromising the integrity of the Scriptures? How do we best speak into cultural moments without becoming slaves to the culture? We will be exploring these things and other questions in this webinar. And keeping with the spirit of Expositors Collective, there will be opportunities for interactive learning. So join us, we look forward to seeing you there. To get the login information, go to expositorscollective.com and contact us, and we'll send you the login info for the Zoom meeting. We look forward to seeing you there. Now back to our main episode. This is Mike Neglia with Christ-Centered Preaching, recorded live at our training weekend in San Diego.
0: Um, Wonderful to, to have you. I'm just really, really delighted to be here. I've been looking forward to this San Diego event for, yeah, months and months and months. It's America's Finest City, and we get to talk about the world's greatest message. Um, I was expecting like a cheer or something. (laughs) Let me try that again. We're in America's Finest City, and we get to talk about the world's greatest message. Okay. Well, what we're doing is... um, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be giving like a brief sermonette on uh, James chapter 2. So why don't you open your Bibles to James chapter 2. I'm going to walk us through um, some, some verses there. And, uh, and then my BFF, Clay Worrell, is going to also walk us through James chapter 2. So we're going to see two different um, interpretive methods um, in James 2. So I, I, I would love your attention because, A, it's God's Word, but then also pay attention because, again, there's, there's nuances and there's different approaches to Bible teaching, and I, I wonder if you'll notice them or pick them up. Um, I'm going to read the whole, the whole passage and then just uh, make some comments about uh, this important section of Scripture. So James 2, starting in verse 1, going to 12, I'm reading from the, the ESV. My brothers show no partiality, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have become, sorry, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality and are committing sin, sorry, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not murder, also said, Do not commit adultery. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy is shown to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. I want to talk to you about a very relevant um, cultural uh, moment that we're in. Um, This passage of scripture addresses... Uh, believers, uh, church leaders even, um, about the offensive and the vile sin of prejudice. Um, it's it's called there as um, partiality, um, but it can just as easily be rendered as prejudice. And if you kind of break apart the word prejudice, it means pre-judging. I think that's kind of obvious, but prejudice is pre-judging. It means to have um, a preconceived notion that's not based on reason or actual experience. Um, that before a person expresses himself or herself, um, your opinion is already made up about them. And this is a, a very live topic in 2019, isn't it? Um, we see that there's people that can be prejudged based on their back, background, um, based on their accent. Um, as men, was mentioned earlier, I live in a city called Cork in uh, the nation of Ireland, and in the city of Cork, which is not that big of a city, there's prejudice between the Northsiders and the South Siders. Um, they have different accents, and so when someone opens their mouth, you know if they're from the north, if they're a Nori or a Southie, um, just from accents alone. <laughs> Perhaps there is um, prejudice that's available or that's on offer <laughs> these days about age. You know, we we have a room full of mostly young people here. Um, we do want to say that, like, we we love you, we value you, um, we think that you are important, and we want to show value to you. Potentially, or perhaps, because that hasn't been expressed previously. Um, whether it is um, the baby boomers against Generation X, or the millennials against Generation Z. <laughs> um, we just want to say that there's no, we don't want to have this kind of preferential treatment. Um, the, the thing that we have here in this passage is to do with wealth. Um, an example that represents various prejudices. And of course, I'd be a fool or ignorant to not just highlight our current national conversation about race. Um, so, with those in mind, um, what does God's word say to us about prejudice and all of its ugly, various hydra heads and forms that we see? One writer says that prejudice is not a skin issue, prejudice is a sin issue. And James agrees. In verse 9, look at it there. It says, if you show favoritism, you sin. And you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And then he goes on to talk about other sins, such as adultery, such as murder, and highlights and clumps together prejudice as one sin amongst many. So from this passage, I want to highlight a few different things. Uh, verse 5 tells us that the way for us to break this pattern of this sinful prejudice is first and foremost to look up. Uh, verse 5, look at this. Verse 5 says this Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom? If we want to break the sin of prejudice, first we look up and see God is the one who chooses, and he chooses on different levels and different curriculum and patterns than you do. Look up to God. Um, Romans 2 says that God shows no prejudice, and we look at his choosing throughout Scripture. He chooses David over his older, more handsome brothers. He chooses based on different things. Man looks at outward appearance, it says, but God looks at the heart. Um, We see this this glimpse into the life of Jesus as an important, wealthy man named Jairus um, comes pleading to Jesus and says, my daughter is sick, would you come? And then Jesus says to the wealthy named man, absolutely, and he's on his way. But he gets interrupted by a poor, anonymous woman. And he says, you know what? Absolutely. And he stops and spends time with the anonymous poor as well as the wealthy named elite. Um, Jesus also interacts with uh, a woman at the well. John chapter 4 tells us that story. There's a woman who is um, a racial as well as a social outcast. Jesus has time for her. It's one of the longer conversations that we have recorded in that book. Jesus was not prejudiced. As he picked out his disciples, um, he didn't go for the wealthy elite nor the educated classes. He just chose just a bunch of them, <laughs> all different sorts of people, this group of diverse followers of him. Jesus told us to love our neighbor as ourself, particularly in a multi-ethnic and multinational kind of setting that we're in now. Our neighbor could be anybody, and just in a, in a slightly less degree, that was the case as well. He said, love your neighbor as yourself, and then he explained it by telling a story that we refer to as the Good Samaritan. That story is a story of interracial tension. So when it says, who is my neighbor? He says, let me tell you a story about interracial tension and showing neighborly love to somebody different than you. So if we want to eradicate the sin of prejudice, number one, we look up to God who shows no prejudice. Number two, we shut up. (laughs) Verse 12, look at this. Because verse 12 says that the way that we use our mouths and our words is either going to fall into righteousness or unrighteousness, sin, or... Look at verse 12. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of mercy. God cares about what we say, what we speak, how we use our words. You know, how does every racist joke start? Like this. Okay. (laughs) It's always checking who's going to hear. If you're listening to this on podcast, that joke did not communicate well. (laughs) Or even if you're... I don't think you guys got it either. Let me do it again. How does every racist joke start? Okay. (laughs) I think I've learned that if you tell a joke twice, it means that it's a success, right? (laughs) So so people that speak in in these ways, they check around who is listening. Who is listening? Okay, the coast is clear. Now I want to say this joke. Well, you know what? We're to, to, to watch our mouth. Jesus says, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken. Matthew twelve thirty six. We need to interpret that not just in the terms of naughty words, but in the, in the terms of using our words to dishonor those that are made in the image of God. So number one, we look up. Number two, we shut up. Number three, we lighten up. Because it says there in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So here we see the emphasis on, on mercy that's there. I think this could speak to our current situation, where there is, I think, a necessary and an appropriate um, heightened awareness Of the implications of prejudice and race and all these other issues, uh, gender and age and wealth and class and privilege, Um, we need to have this awareness, rightly so, but then also may we be merciful. If somebody said something wrong nine years ago, and you can unearth it in a tweet, are you going to ruin that person's career? If somebody says something um, inappropriate, are you going to, in love, correct, or in justice, um, just ridicule them forever? we got to look up, we've got to shut up, we got to lighten up, and then finally we got to straighten up. I talked about the importance of our words uh, because verse 12 says, speak as those who are going to be judged on the day of judgment, but then also look at it again. It says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. So of course, our actions speak louder than our words. I think it was Leonard Ravenhill that said that the world is not looking for a better definition of Christianity. The world's looking for a better demonstration of it. So, of course, it's good to have the right vocabulary and terminology, but God is looking for a church that lives and acts as we're called to, and not just God, but the world itself. Um, Our churches are to be these places where unity and oneness is shown. Our world is increasingly fractured and divided. Um, Could your Tuesday night Bible study? Could your youth group, could your church congregation be a little glimpse, a little colony of the kingdom of God where there is unity, where there is oneness, where there is love? So to summarize, we look up to God, we shut up, we, list, we lighten up, and we straighten up, and I believe that's how we're going to eradicate this sin of prejudice from our minds. Amen. All right, Clay. Yes,
2: So fancy. Hey, everybody. My name's Clay. So I'm going to teach that same passage. I'm not going to reread it because that was 10 minutes. I'm going to try to do a seven. We'll see what happens. Thanks for timing me. All right. So show no partiality. It's, an, it's a very strong imperative that we have a very clear instruction in James's letter. I love James because he's very, very practical. He's very influenced by Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount. So this is a pretty easy instruction, right? Show no partiality. I would say absolutely not. It's not easy. Uh, To start here, we have to actually start with a confession. We've got to start by confessing the fact that by nature, we are biased. Can you agree with me on that? Um, you're biased, I'm biased, let's just get it out there. We, we need to start here um, and, and you know, recognize that we as humans are naturally predisposed to partiality, to prejudice. And if this wasn't the case, there wouldn't be such outrageous injustice in this world. Um, that are stemming from, from racial and social and gender discrimination. Like Mike mentioned, that's a big, hot topic uh, happening in the world today. You probably see it um, in politics, around the water cooler perhaps, maybe on your socials. Um, by that I mean social media. I hear that's the cool way to say it nowadays. Um, it's, it's really progressive to be about equality, right? But, but we as Christians were archaic. We believe in an oppressive, discriminatory, and outdated ethic that we find in this ancient book. Isn't that right? It's absolutely not right. What we see in our, our text this morning is the Bible actually addresses this issue with more clarity than any social commentary ever could. The Bible actually offers a viable solution to this. So in my very short amount of time today, I want to do my best to try to expose to us um, some of the motivation and power for obedience to this instruction that's found in the text. So there's so much that could be said, I could go on about it for a long time, but for the sake of time, I'm going to limit this to two points. Um, and that is that our motivation and our, our empowerment to show no partiality it comes, through, through, sorry, comes through, first, the glory of Jesus, and second, the gospel of Jesus. So first, the glory of Jesus. It's absolutely key in understanding this passage um, that we understand verse 1. Verse 1 says this, My brothers, show no partiality as, listen to this, As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Your Bible might read our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, if you have an NIV or NASB or something like that. Um, I I think that that's a less good uh, translation than what the New King James and the ESV says, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of glory. The Greek literally says, the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. It's an emphasis, it's a slightly awkward way to to say that Jesus Christ is full of glory, and I think James did that intentionally. And so to see why this is significant, we have to define glory. It's one of those words that we can very easily kind of lose the definition of, because it's a very Christian-easy term. Christian-easy, can I use that word? We did. But glory means something specific. The Greek word is doxa, the Hebrew word is kavod. And I wish I could get into this deeply, but I can't. But Tim Mackey did a really amazing teaching at the Door of Hope a couple years back in, in, in Portland on glory. This is a, a word study that he, he did on it. And if you want to listen to it, I strongly suggest it. you can find it on Exploring My Strange Bible, the podcast. It's wonderful. But what Tim did by being an amazing linguist like he is, and, and he showed us from scripture that, that glory is, and I'm paraphrasing here, essentially the external evidence or majesty or, or, or um, the, sorry, the external evidence of the majesty or character or essence or power of somebody. Um, it's not the person themselves, but what points to the person. So Tim used an example of his 14-year-old self to illustrate what glory was, and so I'll mention very briefly my 14-year-old self. When I was 14, I had a bedroom, which most of us did, and in that bedroom, I very proudly displayed certain things. I was into BMX racing. I wasn't very good, but I did win a couple of trophies, so I had my third-place trophies up on the the shelf very proudly portrayed, and I had a, a BMX poster, I had black candles for some reason, and I had a big poster of Britney Spears because it was the 90s and she was cute back then. So, don't judge me. Um, and, and if somebody would come, one of my friends would come to my room, I would welcome them into my room and I would be so proud of all these things that I had displayed. Why? Because those things showed the people who would come into my room who I was. They showed my glory. They showed my, my accomplishments, my personality, my character, my strength, my weight. And so Tim Mackey would say that those things, that room, was my 14-year-old glory. Now, with that understanding, Psalm 19 makes a lot of sense, right? When it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So teenage boys have a glory in their room. Things that point to their personality, their weight, their strength. Kings have a glory in their, their kingdoms and riches and, and palaces and armies and servants. But God's glory, the external things that point to his weight, his power, his majesty, his greatness is the whole universe. Universe. The stars in the sky, the sunset or the sunrise over the beach, the rainforest in the Amazon. As we look up and look around us, everything, the beauty around us declares how majestic and awesome and powerful God is. So why is this important for us to understand? God is the God of all glory. Jesus is the Lord of all glory. Why does James want us to know that in verse 1 of chapter 2? And it's because James is very specifically calling us in this passage to be more influenced by the glory of Jesus, the Lord of glory, than the glory of men. If glory is external evidence of importance, majesty, or greatness then the chains of those wealthy men in the fine clothing, um, those things are quite literally their glory. And so what we're understanding here is that by showing partiality, we're judging the worth of an individual according to their earthly glory. And, and by so doing, we're failing to recognize the worth that Jesus The Lord of all glory places upon them. So that brings us to our our second point. The gospel levels the playing field. The gospel of Jesus levels the playing field. According to James, when you show partiality, we become uh, judges with evil thoughts. That's what verse 4 says. And the reason we become that is, is precisely because we're judging people according to their earthly glory that points to their relative worth. But the gospel of Jesus, the Lord of glory, is a totally different economy than that. The radically revolutionary message that the whole scriptures teach and that Jesus fulfilled is that earthly worth and glory is actually worthless to God. That everyone, no matter your social economic status, no matter your race, no matter your religion, your gender, we're all equal. But we're equally sinners desperately in need of mercy, right? So Jesus came to this earth for the very purpose of extending the mercy of God through his sinless life of love and service, through his substitutionary death on the cross, and through his victorious resurrection from the grave. And so what James is writing us to, Christians, he's writing to a Christian audience, So he's writing to us as followers of Jesus, and what he's saying, what he's reminding us of, is that our very faith, the very thing that identifies us as a follower of Jesus, is based on a principle that is opposite of partiality. Our only hope, you and me, is found in the radical mercy of God. That even while we were poor, wretched sinners who had nothing to offer to God, Jesus died for us. So in light of that, how can we show preference to those whom we view as more valuable or of more value to us? James encourages us to act not as judges with evil thoughts, but as verse 12 and 13 says, says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment, is, um, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So our motivation, our power to show no partiality is found in the very mercy that we received from Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This isn't something that we can just flip a switch. Remember I started with, we are by default programmed towards partiality, bias, and prejudice. It's not saying, oh, I've got this figured out now because the Bible tells me not to. Now I will no longer have prejudice towards anybody. We are desperately in need of the grace of God on a daily basis to remind us of his glory. And in light of his glory, we'll have the strength and power and grace to show no partiality to those who are around us. Can we pray that God would give us that grace? All right, let's pray. Father, we recognize the fact that we are broken sinners, that, Lord, we are, spiritually speaking, wretched and poor, and that we have nothing on our own to offer to you. We thank you, God, that you, by the radical mercy and grace of Jesus, have rescued us from our depravity and have given us a new life in Christ. And we pray that on a daily basis, you would help us to be so enamored with the glory of the Lord of glory, that God, we see people through the lens of your eyes, with the value and the worth that you place upon them, not because of anything on this earth, but because of your love for them. So we love you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
0: Thank you. Okay. Okay. You heard those 12 verses taught um, by two different people. What what is the differences that you've noticed in our interpretive styles? And this is like the interactive bit, so. Yes. Which one? <laughs> but I men- I mentioned Jesus a lot. Okay. Good observation. Uh, yes. Yeah. Why don't you explain moralistic therapeutic deism? Okay. And then again, for the podcast recording, moralistic therapeutic deism is, is feeling good about believing in the gospel, believing in God, feeling good about believing in God. Yeah. Doing, doing good. Yeah. Christian Smith has written a lot about it. Okay, what's another difference? I think I saw another hand. Yes. I that. Yeah, I think I, 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 in mine, I identified it as sin and told people to stop sinning. Yeah. Yep, I told people to look up, shut up, lighten up, and straighten up. And Clay pointed out that verse one says to, to not show partiality because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and then brought us to him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Aaron, yes. I feel like i the second one much more than the first. The first was kind of like... His didn't even rhyme, though. <laughs> um, Pete, could you... The oh. first was kind of like... Microphone now.
3: I'm the one that gets the microphone. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first one, you shared a lot of scripture to back up the points that you were giving. Okay. Um through various areas of scripture, um, he shared that single verse and mm. focused on that single verse um, mm. and just explained what that was about.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, sometimes it's good to bring in loads of scripture, but then when it's just kind of like a like a shotgun, you know, just you know, here's here's what I want to say. Here's seven verses. Here's something else. Here's seven more verses. Again, nothing against using loads of Bible, but yeah, Pete, bring it on to the. Um, I would just say that yours um, kind of left us feeling more um, hopeless
4: in a sense because it's us relying on ourselves to get out of those patterns or, or to straighten up or whatever, yeah. whereas his was more, again, I think that's already been said, but just relying on the glory of God and focusing on God rather than focusing on ourselves and our sin.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
5: Just to kind of echo some of that, um, Yours uh, tickled my ears a little bit more than Clay's did, for sure.
0: Oh, because it was better?
5: No, <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I want to hear. I want to hear a message of, of what I can do to merit my own salvation.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. In some traditions, that's called hard preaching. It's, um, you know, you preaching, thump right. on the pulpits, and you, you really go hard against sin. Um, okay. Um, I remember this module from the last expositors that I went to. And I was um, I was curious to see which which one of you was going to teach the the, the bad one per se. Um, Are you saying mine was bad? No 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 come on well, I tried I mean, hard I am actually but uh, yes yes for the record it was bad that was and intentionally so but yeah go on Trevor. what tipped me off um, and what made me realize that yours was going to be the less effective one was
6: um, whenever you said we need to look up to christ and the verses that we read didn't say look up it, did, it never said specifically okay. and you said what the uh... scripture specifically says here is we need to look up and um, like i was able to clearly see uh... using the verse as a platform to jump off and um... Grasp something that you had yeah. your target set on yeah but not you know
7: using the scripture as an unrelated platform to jump to that conclusion
0: Wonder- oh, good. well done
8: We're excellent Yeah. Yeah, if you want to be heard, get your hand up early because I have to move around. Yeah,
0: so. yeah. Maybe maybe these these final three guys could be the ones. Mind will really be quick. Did you make that sermon up or did you borrow it from somebody else? Um, I I didn't make it up. I I took all of it from a, a sermon that I heard online. So I, so, so I just I went to I went to the Apple Podcast store. <laughs> or the app, you know, and I just typed in James 12 James 2 1 to 12 Pete Nelson. And <laughs> and I and I listened to it and I thought, yeah, that'll do. That'll do. And um googled it googled it this morning on my laptop, found their outline. I was like, yep, yeah, that's good. So the points and the subpoints have all been preached before by somebody else. Okay. So um
4: with yours, I noticed more of you, uh, your speaking style, hmm. um, proliferation. I think that's the word, using kind of similar, um, similar words and similar diction to okay. communicate your points. And then um, with the second sermon, I noticed less of the speaker and just more of Christ. Wow. So there was wow. more of this um, kind of this ease to it. Um, Kind of like versus driving like my Nissan Versa, I'm noticing more of like the the cars issues versus like a BMW that's just going to kind of just cruise smoothly down You're the road. You're enjoying the road. That's kind of yeah. Park. If
0: mm-hmm. that makes sense. Oh, that's yeah, excellent. Great. And a, f- a final one. Wasn't there one more yeah. uh, behind you? I thought. Doo-doo. I think with the with the second one, I noticed like a. A definite why of like why we should care about this passage. Like he
6: said, we we should care about this because we were once sinners, and there was something in there that specifically said I can't remember exactly, but it was like the gospel evens the playing field. Like he brought up a good point as to why this passage is something we should address in the first place. Hmm. Yeah, great.
0: Well, well great guys. Um, <clears throat> thank you very much for your like for your listening ears, and then also for your like your feedback. Um, I think that's that's great. I'm, I'm thankful that you're listening, um, and then I'm thankful that you're noticing those differences. Um, so for the next uh, couple of minutes, like I want to talk about like those differences. I want to talk about um, why my sermon, although it was true, I think it wasn't true enough, and although it was like it was okay, it wasn't good enough. I think that you know yet your people deserve better. Um, They don't need a list of what is wrong with them and a list of things they need to do. Um, They need to um, be instructed, but then to be called up to the glory of the Lord Jesus uh, himself. So I'm going to talk about how we can do that. Um, So if I'm going to kind of summarize this talk in one sentence, I would do it with this slide. Um, That faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. Um, that is my thesis statement, and so I'm going to be coming back to explaining that statement um, bit by bit um, over the next uh, couple of minutes. So, what I think is, what, what is so important to me, what is the, the drum that I've been banging for like 12 years... Um, what's, what has transformed me, what has enriched my ministry, and what I just want to get every preacher in the world excited about is is what I call Christ-centered preaching. Um, preaching and teaching in such a way that makes much of Jesus, that, that goes to him from every passage, that shows his glory um, to weary sinners who just need to hear not a list of tasks that's left undone, But a Savior that said, It is finished. And so, with that, I want to say, like, you know, first off, why? Why why do I think this is so important? Well, because Jesus told me so. Um, Let's look at the next couple of verses. Um, John 5, 39. There's a slide. John 5, 39 says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness of me. And then in Luke 24, two verses. He says, um, you know, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And then verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms should be fulfilled. So I think about these verses. For me, these are very important verses about how do we interpret the the Scripture, um, how do we interpret the Moses and the prophets, how do we interpret the Psalms um, through this lens? So I I do, I love the, you know, the inductive Bible study. I love those sets of questions um, that we're to ask ourselves um, in addition to those like three sets of questions, like I ask myself a fourth question as I have my Bible open, as I'm preparing for Sunday morning or whatever. Um, that fourth question is, how would Jesus explain this passage on the road to Emmaus? So again, Luke 24, that's him talking there. It says that he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself law prophets the psalms Um, i just try to imagine that jesus is walking with those two guys and uh, and they're like oh it's all about you oh my goodness well hey well what about james 2 you know and then he'd say well james hasn't been written yet but um (laughs) but you know whatever my whatever my passage is um I, i think how would if they had questions about it how would he interpret that towards himself? So again, going back to our big thesis statement, faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. Um, I believe that this is faithful Bible teaching. Um, I don't think that this is just the latest trend. Um, it's not the latest trend because I've been into it for 12 years. Trends don't last that long. <laughs> I know. I had a spinner collection. I fit to spinner collection. <laughs> um but now is a great time to get into fidget spinners because you can get them for cheap anywhere. <laughs> um, faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus. So this is faithful. This is faithful. Can we go back to the, the previous slides? Um, if Jesus is correct in John 5 and Luke 24, then we should expect to see that the Old Testament scriptures, they bear witness to Jesus. Um, and that the various genres of the Old Testament, you know, that they would have to do with, they'd be concerning himself. And that they're things that are written about Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, So that means, uh, the next slide, that means that as we look at the Old Testament, as we look at the New Testament, we shouldn't be surprised to see predictive passages, uh, you know, prophetic, forward-looking passages that speak about a Messiah to come. You know, we think about Psalm 22. Um, we think of these so-called you know, messianic psalms that clearly point towards a coming Savior to, to rescue the world and set all things right again. And, and I love those messianic psalms, but I think, to some degree, every psalm is messianic. And I would say that all the passages of Scripture, that they, in some way, they, they show the need for or the character of the coming Messiah, um, there also are these theophanies that appear throughout the Old Testament. This, this godlike man that shows up, we could talk about that later on um, there 's institutions that are instituted that are actually pointers beyond themselves, um, that there 's a messiah that 's going to come and that 's going to fulfill and replace these things, things like the Mosaic law, the tabernacle, the, the sacrificial system, that they are pointing beyond themselves. There's also offices that play such a big part in the history of Israel that are preparatory towards the coming work of Jesus, that there's these anointed men in the pages of the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, the king, um, that they're pointing towards the coming Jesus, that he is the ultimate prophet, that he's not just going to be somebody who speaks on behalf of God, but he's God's word made flesh. Uh, That he's not a king of like a local region, but he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That he's not just another priest bringing sinful people into the presence of God through temporary sacrifices, but he's the great high priest who by offering himself as that once and for all sacrifice, he becomes the priest to end all priests. Um, So we shouldn't be surprised to see that. We shouldn't be surprised to see acts of rescue and deliverance that are pointing towards a future rescuer and a future deliverance. The liberations that we see, the the escapes from slavery, the passing through, the watery death, all of that is pointing towards the coming rescuer and the coming deliverer. So I believe the responsibility of a faithful Bible interpreter is to search for those or or rather to uncover them or and then to explain them to all that are listening. So faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. Uh, it consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. Our preaching does not make Jesus the hero. Uh, We're not like creative authors. You know, we're not like doing fan fiction about Jesus. Like, how can we make him seem more impressive? Um, I thought that was kind of funny, but if I say jokes the second time, you guys laugh. So we're (laughs) um, we're not fan fiction authors trying to make him better. No. we're not like fanciful wizards we're not like creating him to be better and, and more impressive we're not like PR agents, you know, public relations we're not trying to make him seem better I believe faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero it's, it's what he is we're, we're, we are like reporters exposing the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ the Bible makes the most sense through this lens He says that the story of the Old Testament is one that makes sense in its most deepest and richest capacity only through reading it through Jesus-shaped goggles. I've I've said this before. Um, Some of you have heard me say this, but it's a bit like the film The Sixth Sense. Have you seen that? It's from 1999. I'm going to do a spoiler. So if you are planning on seeing it, you should leave for a minute. But in the film... The Sixth Sense. It tells a story about this young, troubled boy. And He's assigned this social worker and this young troubled boy says that he sees ghosts everywhere He sees dead people and then he sees all these kind of scary ghosts all throughout Um, And then you kind of realize that the very like last couple minutes of the film you realize that the Bruce Willis character He is a ghost as well that he dies in the opening scene of the film and that the whole time He's been this ghost all throughout so and so there's something that takes place at the very end of the film an important event takes place regarding its main character. And then you're like, oh, the whole film makes sense now. I can't wait to watch it again, now understanding the big event that took place for the main character. Now, guys, in the Bible, there's a main character. The main character is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, because we would know what happens at the end, all the details that maybe seemed insignificant or confusing, all of a sudden, they make sense. The whole story comes together once you know the truth about the main character. Or, to use the language of Graham Goldsworthy, we want to preach the whole Bible as Christian literature. All of it. That means that for you Bible teachers, for you preachers, for you Sunday school um, uh, communicators, for you home group leaders, that means that we should be aiming for distinctively Christian sermons. There ought to be a distinctly and uniquely Christian way of communicating our passages. Now, I I mean this. Think about the last time you taught the Bible. For some of you, it was a sermon. Um, For others, it was a Bible study. But think about it. And think about it. Hold it in your head as I ask this question. If that message were to be given at a faithful Jewish synagogue, um, would it rustle any feathers? Would it offend anybody? Would it be troublesome? Would it be problematic if preached in a Jewish synagogue? If our sermons are not explicitly clear about the messianic hope, well, then we should revisit them. Um, Some of you are thinking, you're remembering your last message. You're like, oh, oh, no, yeah, I mentioned Jesus in it. Okay, yeah, I'm good. (laughs) I would have rustled feathers. (laughs) Well, that's good. But now imagine cutting and pasting that into a local mosque, or a local Mormon temple, because they talk about Jesus, too. My sermon, I talked about Jesus, too. I talked about Jesus a lot. I probably said the word Jesus more than Clay did, but I think he just showed something distinct about Jesus. Because they talk about Jesus as a wise man, as somebody who can tell you how to live life, a spokesman for God, but not they don 't glory in him as the risen Savior, as the one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ, so guys let's let 's leave the synagogue sermons to the synagogues let 's preach Christ. so is this just something having to do with like the old testament no <laughs> i 'd say it 's not only for our Old Testament sermons. Um, this is an important New Testament principle as well uh, to quote um, Uh, Ferguson. What's his first name? I can't think of his first name. Sinclair Ferguson. He says that most evangelical pastors don't preach Christ from the Old Testament, but he says to make matters worse, a lot of them barely even preach him in the New Testament as well. So it's possible to present the New Testament in such a way that just instructs you to just stop being prejudiced, would you? Come on, just be nice to everyone. Jesus was nice to everybody. Come on. There's ways to just preach and teach like that and to have a lot of verses, but again, Jesus is not presented as the glorious risen Savior. We need to present New Testament passages in a way that strips away our failed hope of our own righteousness, that salvation is not something that's earned nor deserved. If we just preach a list of rules to follow, then you become the hero. The one who's able to obey those rules becomes the hero. If you're strong enough, if you're wise enough, if you're devout enough, if you're tolerant enough, then you're the hero if you can obey them. But guys, that's not Christianity, is it? So faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. This should be consistent from both testaments in youth group and in adult congregations, consistently. Sunday after Sunday, consistently. Not just on Easter. Not just when you feel like it, but in and out, there's this message of the goodness of Jesus. The gospel is not only for our, sanct- for our salvation, but also for our sanctification as well. Um, we need to hear this as we grow, now, when I think of my early years as, as preaching, I've been preaching consistently for about 15 years now. I started, I started quite young. Um, and I thought that what God put me on this earth to do was to bring about revival um, through preaching about holiness and just these revival-oriented messages. Um, the main point of most of my sermons was that we need to be more serious about our evangelism. We need to get into the word more. We need to be praying long and strong. And the reason why there's not revival in our city is because we don't want it badly enough. And I I recall um, a sermon that I preached on Jonah chapter 1. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that's when there's the storm and, um, and Jonah is, is on the bottom of the boat, he's asleep, and then the, the people up on the top, they're all panicking and they're throwing things overboard, and it says, and they were calling out to their gods, but Jonah was down there sleeping. And I thought, oh, that's my chance. And so I preached a really good message about how he was sleeping when he should be praying, And come on, church, why aren't you coming to our prayer meetings? The reason why we don't have revival is because you're not praying enough. You're like Jonah sleeping. Okay, come on, let's pray. And that that was it. Just taking that passage to make people feel bad about not attending the prayer meeting. It would have been a great chance to speak about somebody else who slept in the middle of a storm. Um, somebody else who brought peace uh, in the midst of violence and a fear-orienting place. But it wasn't because he was thrown overboard, but he brings peace by going into the cross itself, um, satisfying the wrath of God on the cross, not by being thrown into the sea. Anyway, faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. I, I came across this through a, a, a podcast. You know, I'm a big podcast guy. I like podcasts. I host a podcast, the Expositors Collective Podcast, part of the Good Lion Network of Podcasts. Um, And if you don't subscribe, you should. Um, But the reason why I'm so into podcasts is because in 2007, a podcast changed my life. I was uh, listening to a message from a man by the name of Tim Keller, and he was talking about gospel-centered ministry. And he was speaking that the main point of Christianity is Jesus and saying that yeah, that again, talking about how so many sermons just have Jesus as like a background character or as a prop um, in our sermons to, to say what we really want to say. Uh, I was preaching sermons about the little boy who gave Jesus his lunch. He gave his loaves and fishes. And, and you should give your loaves and fishes too. What's your loaf? What's your fish? Why aren't you giving it to Jesus? And, and I was kind of realizing, man, he's just a background character. I'm not talking about the wondrous Jesus who is the true bread come down from heaven, who is broken and distributed to needy sinners. And so I realized, oh, I'm missing the point. And so I, like, I slid off the chair. I got on my knees. I, I repented. And I said, Jesus, if you let me keep preaching, I will just like, make you the hero of everything from now on because you truly are the hero. The little boy isn't the hero. Peter isn't the hero. My prayer life isn't the hero. Jesus is the hero. And since then, I've just been like doing that for 12 years, Um, probably better and worse. Um, I I aim really hard to have not just my doctrine, but also my life be one where I'm glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. But I know that my church is so much better off because of it. I know the people that come and and sit under my preaching are not being burdened by obligations and my weird just hopes for random revival, but they're hearing the good news of Jesus every single time. Uh, There's a woman in the church, and she was telling me that um, I... She loved when I would talk about the love of Jesus, that it, that it just made her day. She was suffering from depression, and, and when she'd come to church and hear about how Jesus loves her, that it would just get her through the week. And she wished that I did it more, um, that you know that it'd be once a month or so. Every, every six weeks, there'd be a nice one about the love of Jesus. Um, but, so she would like, talk about how she would be getting dressed on Sunday morning, and she would just hope, I, I want to hear about the love of Jesus today. I hope that I hear about the love of Jesus today. And I, like a greedy miser, barely dispensed it. And now, that's my primary focus. You know that song, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood? I love the line that says, Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wound supplied. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Guys, there's no greater theme to have than that. There's no better chorus to keep coming back to in the song of our life of just the redeeming love of Jesus. So for you, I wanna ask the same question that I was kind of asked, um, is the love of Jesus and his rescue for sinners, is it one topic among many? Or is it the consistent theme of all your teaching, of all your preaching? There's advantages for this. The next slide shows four advantages. Uh, number one, I believe this is right. It's orthodox, it's appropriate, it's historic. But also, it works. <laughs> it actually works. You know. Jesus' sheep love hearing about the love of the shepherd, whether the erring sheep or the faithful sheep. They need to be wooed and heard back about his love. Um, this is missiological as well. Visitors to your church, they expect that you're going to be talking about Jesus. Visitors are surprised when you don't. So don't, don't let them down, okay? And believers, this is necessary for them as well. They need to hear this. So non-Christians need to know that Jesus and his gospel is not just the entry point of the Christian life, but it's the substance. And then also we want to prepare with the non-Christian visitor in mind, but also remembering our main congregation is Christians. And they need to hear the gospel too. We need to hear the gospel again. Your people need to hear the good news of his salvation again and again and again. And why would you withhold Christ from either of them? How would you not talk about the saving love of Jesus to the visitors or to the members of your congregation? So there's ways that we can um, query and study the test, sorry, study the text that, that, um, that can help us to arrive there responsibly. Um, if you look at your books, if you turn to page 49, there is a, a resource that myself and uh, Char Broderson uh, put together kind of rumbly isn't it that's the power of the booklet no um and so in there there's um all kinds of lists um about ways and means to arrive there the kind of questions that we should be asking the text and i'm not going to go through them they're they're there for you i trust that if this is kind of sparked curiosity in you that you're going to look at these things and figure them out and follow them through. These are questions to ask. Again, what I do is I just think, what would Jesus say about this on the road to Emmaus? But there's some more sophisticated questions um, that are there in the back. But what we're going to do now, since I'm kind of done talking anyway because these are so loud, is we're going to break into our groups and we're going to, as groups, look at different passages of scripture and see how can we show the glorious love of Jesus, his saving rescue in these passages. And then in a few minutes time, we'll have um, kind of a report as we talk through these things and hear um, what can we see and learn about the saving, rescuing gospel, the love of Jesus in every passage. How do we apply it to our lives in a way that makes much of Jesus and doesn't make us the hero? How do we consistently show Jesus as the hero? So let's let's start with um, let's start with Second Samuel nine. Um, who who had a that's, couple that's different only, groups only, Yeah, that's okay. So, so two groups. These two groups had Second Samuel nine. Yeah, forgive me. I got sloppy towards the end, and so we might not have an even distribution of verses. But it's good. Yeah. Okay. So. But let's let's start back there. They seem the most eager back there.
8: Okay, they are <laughs> eager.
0: So we would love if you could... Do you, you want could... to talk
8: to us? Do so you have a spokesman or what do you think?
0: We yeah, so we'd love like a, a summary of the story if we're unfamiliar with it and then your discoveries. All right, so um, it was kind of an odd story at first.
7: Um, it starts off with uh, King David coming and asking if there's any, anybody in Saul's household that he can show kindness to. Um, and one of Saul's servants named, uh, Ziba comes up to him and says, well, there's a son of Jonathan, um, uh, but he's lame in both feet, um, and he's off in the city, um, and so David calls him to him and essentially, uh, brings him into his household and, and takes care of him and, uh, invites him in as a son, and yeah. it was just kind of a really weird story, but we started digging into it in the context and saw this beautiful picture of how Jesus, um, he comes to us and, and, and we're broken and he doesn't come to us for our sake. He, he comes to us, um, and saves us, I mean, for his own sake. Um, or, you know, uh, David came for the sake of Jonathan. He was just trying to honor because of, uh, what Jonathan had done for him. Um, and the same way we're saved, uh, not because of what we, anything we've done. We're Mephibosheth. I mean, we're like, we're lame, we're crippled, um, and in that culture, it was interesting because if you couldn't um, provide for yourself or you couldn't do work, that was a huge like loss in dignity. And dignity was almost everything to them. I mean, even the even the poor um, were given work to do to earn their food. And so Mephibosheth had none of that. Um, and yet David still came and, and he associated with him and he brought him in um, and took care of him and, and basically made him a son. And even more so... Um, we saw how cool it was that Jesus uh, came in and he did the same thing, and he even took our cri- our uh, our crippledness upon himself mm. and healed wow. us wow. from from how broken we were. Um, and he he seeks that intimacy with us that you're into our you're in my family now. You know I'm associating yeah. with you. You're my son, um, and I chose you. I didn't. You weren't just born into this. Huh. Um, and there's also even a uh, a slight picture of uh, Ziba and his servants ended up working for Mephibosheth and tending the fields that he was given, um, and a picture of the church and how uh, David sent them out to go find and take care of um, Mephibosheth. Yeah. Oh, so. that's, that's good. good. That's a
8: good one. I've wow. seen I like
0: that,
7: that one.
8: Yeah. You guys want to add to this? Yeah. Hi. They, they did good? Okay.
0: Yeah, but... You got hearty
8: agreement? Yeah, that's really good, right? Mike? Yeah. What, we, what's
0: we, need, we need this group as well.
8: Is someone... What?
0: Yeah, we, we can't let them off.
8: Yeah, okay, come on. Yeah. Fill in the blanks.
9: Oh, okay. Well, there was one thing we noticed at the end of the passage, and now I lost my Bible here, but... Uh, so, uh, Mithibosheth, he sits down at the king's table continually. Yeah, thank you. And so... And it says in the passage at the very end, and you know, it makes mention again that he's crippled. So even though he's now in the king's uh, at the king's table, he still carries his brokenness with him. So it's it's we were talking about how um... you know God or the king is a picture of God in this in this uh, passage because um, you know basically the promise made to Jonathan that David made to Jonathan was, hey, I'll, I'll take care of your house here. And so this guy comes with no merit of his own. You know, like he was saying, it's, he's a cripple. And an outcast in society, and now he gets to sit at the king's table, even though he's still basically uh, worthless in the sense of not being able to do anything. So, yeah, Yeah. that's
8: good. And so he's just like we're covered with the righteousness of Christ, right, Mike? Yeah. That we're that that the that the justification and righteousness of Christ covers us just like he did, and that's that's really good. Like the king David. King David has, remember, it says that he has thoughts he wants to bless someone and give, show grace to. And so this is what's on King David's mind. Then you have Mephibosheth, who's probably fearing his own life because he was the son, right, of Jonathan, and he thought that the king, the new regime, would want to kill him. So he's living in fear because he doesn't know what's on the king's heart and on his mind. And that's how we are before we discover the mercies of God. We're living in fear, and then King Jesus comes and He recu- uh, rescues us and brings us not only just you know not only just blesses us and say, "Hey, it's okay, don't be fearful," but actually invites us into His family and partice- partake of His blessings. Amen. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's all right. Really but but wait, there's more. I have oh. one more group. Yeah.
8: you got Second Samuel too. Yes, we did. Okay. Um, and pretty much everything that everyone else said, we got as but well. But you have Guzik in your group, so there but must be more. we have Guzik more. in our group. <laughs> so we got a little bit more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what we got that was really interesting was that David sought um, Mephibosheth through a servant. And I think the very first group talked a little bit about how we're kind of like the church, that he's kind of like the church, that the Lord uses us. To reach those who are otherwise like, like crippled like we are, you know, using a servant to reach those who are lost, and then restoring what was essentially uh-huh. broken and destroyed, you know, restoring our brokenness, restoring all the things that were lost, and so that was just something interesting that we also caught from it. Uh-huh.
6: What was
1: it? The, the, the concept there is related to the goel, there the the kinsman redeemer who restores what was lost.
0: Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, guys. Mike. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thanks. Okay. Um, well, then, who has First um, Samuel seventeen, the David and Goliath story? Nobody. No. Well, oh, let's guys. talk
8: about it, Mike.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, so Pete, what's what's the the bad way to teach that?
8: I would think. The way you normally hear that in Sunday school and youth group is, David stood up against Goliath, and so what are the Goliaths in your life? And so muster up your strength yeah. and pick your five stones. And, um, and what are
0: those five smooth stones? Oh, they could be... Uh, they you could know, be literally an, any, anything. Anything. <laughs> and deal with the
8: Goliath in your life, you yeah. know, or be a better Daniel or whatever. Yeah. But... Really, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, so, so that's, that's, that's a way of looking at it. Yeah. But also I think to picture it into the big picture of, of God's story is that there's the, the people of God that are, um, that are helpless, that are scared, that are intimidated, that are facing mm-hmm. certain death, but somebody comes who stands on their behalf and represents them in battle, and at great risk to himself, he defeats the enemy. And because he defeated the enemy, that means that his victory is applied to all mm-hmm. of them. So the Israelites that were you know, shaking in their boots and too scared and unable to fight on their own, mm-hmm. someone comes in as one of them, for all of them. Mm-hmm. He defeats their, their enemy, and then they're counted as conquerors, as yeah. more than conquerors, because somebody else defeated the enemy for them.
8: That's right, and so they took all the spoils and blessings because the one conquered the enemy of death and yeah. sin and death, and so we get the blessings just like the army of Israel. Yeah. So. That, that was a
0: good group. <laughs> Thanks. I like being in your group, Pete.
8: <laughs> uh, what else? Keep okay. this rolling.
0: Yeah, um am um, Philippians two is next. Who who had Philippians two? Right over here. Okay. That's fine. You got
6: it. Thank you. We had uh Philippians two and uh the section Paul's talking about um us uh, not grumbling, not complaining. He's telling us uh, not to do all these things. But we realize that we can't start there. We had to go back to the beginning of chapter 2, where we see Jesus. We see Jesus's humility, his obedience, his victory over sin. And then we see a therefore, and we all know that, you know, what's it there for? So we go on to see that It's Jesus, it's God, in verse 13, where it says, "...for it is God who works in you both to will and for his good pleasure." So we can't stop complaining, stop grumbling, and do these things on our own. We have to do them through the power of Jesus. When we try and do it on our own, it's for our own glory, it's in vain. But Jesus, through his victory, gives us the power and the ability to overcome these things, and to not complain, and to um, be lights in the world, as Paul saying is the big theme here, is to be light. But Jesus is the light; we're not the light. So we have to show who Jesus is, and Jesus will show Himself through us.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, so, Pete. What would you add?
8: Oh, I would just add in light of the gospel of how how we. Uh, we grumble, we, we're always self-seeking, and we're always having a problem with things that don't go our way, and in light of what Jesus did, he is the one that had everything to complain about. Mm. He is the one that was unjustly accused. He He was the one with no sin that went to the cross on our behalf without a complaint, and it says, for the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame, Right? And, and and he had, took joy in in going to the cross for us. And so, um, when you look, when you see Jesus, it's you, you're undone well, by anything we have a problem with or can complain about.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. And and the solution to grumbling is, is not just yet to stop grumbling. Come on, that's
8: shut right. up. Yeah.
0: Point three of my sermon. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the solution to grumbling is, is gratitude. And, yeah. and so we, we, of all people, have so much to be grateful for. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, yeah, those, those filters can be... Pla- not, that can be... Rem- we could read Philippians 2 in light of those, those truths mm-hmm. and highlight that.
8: Yeah.
0: But, yeah, there's just additional good stuff. But, yeah, you guys had good stuff to say as well. Did anybody else have Philippians 2? Okay. Numbers 14. All right, somebody from this group. So
1: so we took a a little bit different approach. We're going to have Justin kind of give the... Kind of what you guys did up on stage. So he's going to give the egocentric... Bad interpretation. Then Caleb's uh, going to give the good one.
8: Until, until, good one. And tell, and tell, and let everyone know what Numbers 14 is too.
4: Yeah. So, so real quick, quick summary of Numbers 14 is the spies just went in the land of the promised land that God has promised them. They came back. The entire uh, people of Israel had a freakout session. They lacked a lot of faith. Uh, God got mad at them. Moses said, "Lord, please spare us." And the Lord spared them. So That's a quick recap. So. What I have for you guys today is basically, unlike the Israelites, we are not to complain or murmur against God. So you guys should not do that at any cost, but we should have faith, and enough faith so that we can face our own giants in our own promised land, enough faith, unlike the Israelites, that we can go by ourselves and face our own personal giants in the promised land so we can have the promised land that God gave us. So yeah.
10: (laughs) That's (laughs)
1: it.
11: Yeah, so the way that we really think that this passage points to Christ is that um, God's people failed to enter the promised land and have faith in God, which incurred the wrath of God, um, and they needed a mediator, which was Moses. And so just like the people of Israel, we have um, deserved the wrath of God because of our sin, and we need a mediator, um, and that mediator is Jesus, and he restores the peace between God and man. So, yeah.
8: Yeah, and the promised land, yeah. And in the Christian life, right, Mike, the promised land is something we don't have to wait for in heaven, but it's something we can enter into right now through the mediation, through the finished work of the cross. We can enter into the promises of God, on, not because we deserve any of them, but because Jesus was the mediator between a holy God and sinful man, and now we can enter into those uh that that promised land you know like Ephesians is the is the New Testament Joshua we we enter we lay hold of those things
0: yeah yeah and then even later on in that in that passage like verse 39 I guess I know it's not not fair but you know they they're told oh you can't you can't do it and they they kind of freak out and like oh no no no, and they try it in their own strength Uh and it's it's quite sad um, you know here we are we're going to go up to that place that the Lord promised and, um, and Moses says oh no no don't do that and then they go up and they have this you know, astounding defeat and so there's I guess a little glimpse of the self-sufficiency and the hard-heartedness and hard-headedness of like well I'm just going to try it my way
8: Yeah. and one thing you know w- with this module is uh, a lot of this is about you know when it says do not grumble it's okay to say don't grumble you know mm. it, like there There are some instructions there, but we talk about really how are we landing the plane in our Bible studies, in our sermons, you know landing it on the finished work uh, of Jesus Christ, you know and um, yeah, so so when we say these things like David and Moses, we use terms like we we, we teach the text what is happening historically right there and but also, we say, but yet there's one greater than Moses. There's one greater than David, the son of David, who went. And those are some of the yeah. ways that we want to just bring it all together, you know, in, in, in what we're talking about right now. So what's the next one?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there's no, no more numbers, 14? Oh, there is. All right
4: so we uh, we totally agree with everything that was was mentioned with the previous group. One interesting thing I saw and, and we kind of discussed in uh, in Numbers 14 is that you could also teach it with the whole context of the the children of Israel as being a picture of us, that from captivity to sin in, in Egypt, they are, they are saved. They are set free in the Exodus. They begin their journey. Um, uh, baptism in the Red Sea. They're brought to new life. They receive the Word of God at Mount, Mount Sinai. Um, you know, they're growing in God's Word, and then here they are at the edge of the Promised Land. Um, so you can kind of talk about the whole picture, kind of view of salvation, and find ourselves as, as believers in their story. Um, and then there's one thing that, you know, we kind of noticed um, in Numbers 14, is that when the people are grumbling and complaining, they come against Moses and Aaron. It's interesting, you, uh, you see that it's described that Moses and Aaron actually fall on their faces. But then you see Joshua, who we know is a picture of Christ, rise up. And begin to fight for the people, and to encourage them to move forward in faith, and to cling to the promises of God that He had given His people. So you see Moses and Aaron, who I think represent the law, the law that was brought through Moses, um, fall, t- fall flat on their faces. And you see Joshua, who's a picture of Christ, rise up, who we know eventually ends up leading the people of Israel into the Promised Land, who's um, a picture of Jesus. So that could be totally wrong,
0: but I feel like it's right. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's such a good, yeah, statement. It could be wrong, but I feel that it's right. That's, (laughs) that's a very 2019 thing. (laughs) Uh,
6: yeah. Just understanding how we, um, take this in like light of how, I guess we've learned the Bible and, um, like all of our lives, especially with like the different ways that we've heard these sermons, is it still wrong to, like, say, like, take um, like, the application even though, like, it might not be necessarily the way that uh, you would preach or teach it to somebody, but to take the application of, hey, the people of Israel didn't have the level of faith that they needed. Is it not, is there not a way that we still say, like, hey, this is the kind of level of faith that we need to have? Is there not, like, a teaching to get from that? I guess that's what I've been kind of struggling with, with this entire time, trying to Understand if it's just wrong or if there's like a balance that I'm, we're missing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, what's your name? Io. I. Io. Yeah. Io. That's, that that is a great question, and and, and Pete was referencing that <clears throat> a little bit ago, um, because yeah, what we're not saying is we're not like we don't want to take away or subtract from the imperatives of Scripture. You know, we really are told to to not grumble, and we shouldn't teach um, you know Philippians two in such a way as you know. Well, it says to not grumble, but we all grumble, but I know one who never grumbled, Jesus. And so we place our trust in him and that his lack of grumbling is applied to our grumbling. And so we can keep grumbling. You know, like, and, and some people have applied, and that's kind of a, a, a caricature of you know, the Christ-centered hermeneutic, that it, that it neuters every command by saying that you know, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that, therefore we're free to not fulfill it. Whereas, yeah, Jesus calls us to obedience, but He also supplies the power to do so. Yeah, and and so um, I was. There's a uh, John Piper actually did a like. There's like a six minute YouTube clip where he kind of talks about how being focused on Christ empowers us to obey Scripture. It doesn't free us from not having to obey Scripture. I um, will send yeah. it to you somehow.
8: And that's exactly it. So have more faith. How do you? Muster up faith within you know, but what empower what gives you faith? faith comes by hearing the Word of God, and so what gives us what what increases our faith and what increases our faith is the gospel the the word of God, you know, and so we're're we 're we're completely resting on a whole nother source instead of mustering up that within ourselves. So we got to keep moving because we've got dinner. So So what's the next one?
0: Nehemiah 4 is next and my group has it. So can you give the microphone to Grace?
3: Hi. So we had Nehemiah 4, 15 through 23. And the setting was like the foiled plot of Israel's enemies against this remnant that had come back against them because they were trying to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. And how Nehemiah responded to that and told everybody to arm themselves and to keep on building and to be building in shifts. And, um, but he starts out in, um, in 15 by saying that it was known, as, and it happened when our enemies heard, and that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing. And then in the end, in verse 20, it says, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. And it just shows the big restoration picture of a God who fights for people who are weak and oppressed in their own strength. And um, also a confidence in God's faithfulness that because he had already shown himself faithful, he's going to continue to show himself faithful. And just like it says that we can be confident that he who has begun a good work in us is going to complete the work that he has done. So they have a future hope and a present hope. And... um, and a recognition that no matter what they were doing practically, their hope essentially laid in God fighting the battle for them. You know, like, they labor in vain if God doesn't build the house for them.
0: So, Yeah, good stuff. I have an, another group that's in uh, Nehemiah 4. Okay.
5: So, whoa, that's loud. Sorry. So, um... I think it'd be very easy to teach this from just kind of a moralistic standpoint. Um, I think it's easy to go to, you know, the Israelites have this problem. They're trying to build this wall. And then there's a verse where it says, you know, each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. And it'd be so easy to go there and just be like, yeah, these guys, you know, they're hardworking. And, but they, you know, they've got their swords, you know, and it's like the word. We need to have the Bible with us at all times. And, you know, why can't, it's easy to make these guys the hero of the story, where for us, it'd be like, you know, we got to work really hard and make sure that we're just in the scriptures more and we're studying more and doing more devotions. But I think, yeah, you totally nailed it. And one of our guys pointed out in in the text, it said, uh, you know, God is the one who fights for us. And that really is like the central theme that everything flows from. I think it's, you know, the, for the Israelites, they're in this moment where, you know they're building a wall they're expecting a battle to come and God is saying to them I am the one who's going to fight for you and they're focused just on that moment but if you zoom out on the narrative of scripture from Genesis 1 God has been fighting for his people trying to rescue them and this is just one small piece of that puzzle he's continuing to fight he's continuing to bring it towards the cross and this is just a, a part of that story I think once that falls into place and once you understand that God is the one fighting and God is the one doing the work and they're building this wall, but really they're just tools in the hand of the master craftsman who is building this great work throughout the meta narrative of scripture. um, It's something to me and and to our group as we were studying it, we were looking at the application and for us it was... We understand that we are not called to just sit back and just expect God to fix all of our problems, to just say, oh, God fights my battle, so I'm just going to pray and I'm never going to do anything. We're called to work. We're called to fight. But we're called to understand that Jesus is the one ultimately who's doing the work and the fighting, and we are the tools in the hands. We are the swords in the hand of Christ. And so for us, it's, it's accepting that, you know, we, it's not on us. Like, it's not on us to fix our problems. It's not on us to build our own walls. But it's just us stepping into the work that Christ is already doing and submitting to him because he really is the hero doing the work, and it's not about us. So...
0: Yeah, because yeah, uh, I believe we, there's a there's a third group that had Nehemiah. Is there a third? Okay. But yeah, it's great to see it in its context. we were talking in our group about the importance of context of like the paragraph and the sentence, but there's the context of like the whole Bible. Where does this fit into the whole Bible context as well? But sorry.
10: Cool. Yeah. So um. So our group kind of landed on kind of the, some of the other points made out, and just like that idea that Jesus is. Um, he ultimately brought the plot of the enemy to nothing and he is um, he's won that battle and we're helpless without him and he's the one rallying for us. Um, but another um, thing that we kind of noticed from this passage is that um, because of Jesus like we can all rally together and he's the one who unifies us and you can see the the people here um, just unifying and becoming one and they have one purpose and that's to, um, to to restore the walls that they're protected so that they can worship the Lord and not worry necessarily about the enemy just being able to come march up into the temple and just take them out, right? So, um, they have that, that unity and that purpose and, um, you can see that under Christ, that that's, you know, he's the one who unifies us, and he's the one who brings us all together for one purpose. And um, so it's, it's super cool how that points to that work of Jesus on the cross when he broke down that dividing wall of hostility, and he's made us all one through Christ. So that's one of the other things that we saw in that passage in, in My Eyes. So Sweet.
8: That's excellent. And, you know, why was the, ball, the wall needing to be rebuilt? Because Nehemiah, all the, the scriptures were pointing to that the Messiah was coming. Where? To the city of God, to Jerusalem. And it wasn't just, we don't have, we're not saved. There's so much more in the narrative of scripture. It's actually an incredible, important part for Zerubbabel's temple and for the, the walls to be built because it was setting the stage for the ultimate Messiah the real Nehemiah who really re- rebuilds walls that he's going to come riding in on a colt into that city and, and, and the passion of, of the people of God to, to see the city built for the glory of God, for the coming Messiah.
0: Powerful stuff. Um, what is our end time?
8: Well, we're past it, but let's... Uh, <laughs> we're past it by five minutes, but we could do one more. What, what other scripture did, did we... Uh,
0: well, Pilgrims Group has um, the Good Samaritan.
8: Yeah, let's do it. Okay, and then Riley. So this is
0: the end. Brian's group has got some great stuff on Psalm 23 that you guys can talk, to, ask them about during lunch, during dinner.
11: Wow. Yeah. So we have um, Luke 10. It's a story about the Good Samaritan, and um, in this passage, it's so cool. I had written right next to it like a note from previous sermons. Mm-hmm. Um, that your neighbor is whoever is in need. And so before this, like, that's what I had been getting from this passage, is that, like, oh, we need to, like, be the good Samaritan. We need to go after those who are in need, who've been robbed, who have nothing, who are brokenhearted. And we need to, like, spend all of our money. We need to, like, help them, right, clean them up, get them fixed. But um, in this passage, we see that there was a certain man who was, like, robbed by thieves. He was stripped of his clothing. He was wounded, and they left him half dead dead. But it was the, the priest that was first given the opportunity and he represents the law. He represents religion and religious works. And um, they thought they had it all together. They thought they were right before God. This one passed by the man that was like laying stranded on the side of the road and he didn't even look at him. And then the second time there was a Levite and these were the, the tribe um, the tribe of like the Levites. They were set apart unto God their inheritance was God, and so they thought, like, oh, we're we're set apart, we have it all together, but they, too, like, they didn't even look at this man, they passed by on the other side, and so you go on, and you see that the Samaritan, it's, like, the group um, of individuals that were, like, despised and rejected, and they were, like, hated by everybody else, and, like, this is the man, the Samaritan man, he spent, like, all of, all that he had to take care of this man's needs himself, and so we see a representation of Christ who, like, He was the one who in Isaiah 53 was despised and rejected uh, among men, and he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. He took upon our brokenness and our... um, Yeah, he became the healing for us. He became the Savior for us. And so I love this passage now because, like, rather than us trying to encourage people, yeah, be a good Samaritan. Be the one who, you know, does all these good deeds and, like, sees your neighbor and takes care of them. Like, we see that God does not honor religious deeds because the priest in this passage was the one that, like, didn't even look at the man. And the Levite wasn't the one that looked at the man, but it was the Samaritan, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was despised and rejected on our behalf who became, um, yeah, the one who took, and, and um, like Luke 4, he became yeah. the one who came to heal all the brokenhearted and uh-huh. to like set free those who are oppressed. And yeah, so he is our only hope. So
8: Excellent. That's exactly right. How many times, be a good Samaritan, right? No, we're the ones yeah. traveling on the road. We've been beaten up by the devil. We've been beaten up by our own selves in our own sin. We've been and not
0: helped by the law. We have not been, not been helped, helped by, by the law
8: and 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 Jesus is the good samaritan that takes us in just like Mephibosheth and brings us in and covers all the costs and it's all his grace. Amen.
1: Hey guys, Nick again. Remember, go to expositorscollective.com right now to reserve your spot for the webinar and get the login details. I look forward to seeing you there Saturday, May 9th, 9 a.m. Pacific time.